We should be very careful about artificial intelligence. We are summoning the demon. Hey, welcome back to Babylon Singularity. I am your host, Peter Herter. And uh, last episode, we were talking about Daniel 9 and the 70 weeks. I don't feel like I did justice, not that I could ever do justice to that chapter, but I don't feel like I spent enough time in Daniel 9. So I want to finish that up. But then also what I want to do is I want to take the pieces that we have discovered in the book of Daniel and start to put them together, these different pieces of a puzzle that create a picture that dovetails with the picture that we find in the book of Revelation. And so there's, um, we've talked about Daniel 2, Daniel 7. We went ahead and moved into Daniel 11, and then we backed up into Daniel 9. So it was 2, 7, 11, and 9. Now, I've found some interesting correlations, a couple of concepts um, that tie together to give us um, a picture of what it might look like in the days before Jesus returns to the earth. It's an incredible picture of a time in history when humanity goes all in, at least fallen humanity goes all in with the devil, and the devil, under the devil's leadership, leads a rebellion, a final rebellion. Those are the words that the apostle uses in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where he says, in effect, um, that the day of the Lord will not come unless the rebellion happens and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Those two things, a rebellion and a man of lawlessness, those two things have to happen before Jesus returns to the earth. Where does Paul get this idea? I'm not entirely sure, but I know the book of Daniel plays heavily into the minds of early Christians, um, especially um, the apostle Paul, um, even more so in the mind of Jesus as he's prophesying over Jerusalem, as he's teaching his disciples about what it will look like when the Son of Man returns with the angels of heaven. The book of Daniel is a critical piece in understanding the teachings of Jesus, a critical piece in understanding the teachings of Paul. Paul says there will be a rebellion and a man of lawlessness. Now, these concepts are found in the book of Daniel. I'm not saying that that's exactly where Paul got the idea, but he certainly got the idea from somewhere, and it was from somewhere in the Bible, because I think that's where Paul anchored his understanding was in the Bible. It wasn't in some other extra biblical idea. So he's rooted in the Bible, and I think he's rooted in Daniel, because these concepts that we find in Daniel are, are, are firmly established in Paul's writings and in his teachings. So that is to say that Daniel is a critical book for us to study and to, to ask the Lord for insight on. It's not, Daniel isn't optional for us in this period of time, I believe, I believe Daniel is one of the most critical books for us to understand living in this time. And and here's why. Daniel gives us a blueprint of exactly what will transpire in the time when Jesus returns to the earth. There are several prophecies that are um, attached to the coming of one like the Son of Man, who's coming to establish his kingdom, whose kingdom is like a rock that becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. This is one like a Son of Man appears before the Ancient of Days and is given a kingdom that never 
ends. Those prophecies that tell about a kingdom that is coming, a a kingdom that will end all of the human kingdoms that came before it. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in the dream, he dreams of an enormous statue with a head of gold, with a chest of silver, with a midsection of bronze, with legs of iron and feet of iron and clay, a mixture of iron and clay. And then he sees a stone come out of, apparently, from heaven. I don't know where it comes from exactly. It hits the feet of the statue, the, the, the feet of iron and clay, and destroys the statue. The entire statue busts into pieces, basically into fine dust. A wind kicks up and blows all of the dust of those empires into oblivion, never to be remembered again. And then in the place of those empires, there is a stone, a rock that becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth that goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. That is the kingdom of Christ. And these prophecies of Daniel talk about a time in history when the one like the Son of Man comes, establishes his kingdom, and his kingdom never has, never will end. It is endless. His kingdom will come to destroy all of the empires of man and then establish his kingdom to go on forever and ever. Daniel talks about the time when that happens. And he talks about the things that are happening on the earth when that happens. When the return of Jesus to the earth happens, Daniel gives us information about what is happening in the days of that event. That is why the book of Daniel is critical for us today, because I believe we're heading into the days of when that event occurs. So what does Daniel say about the days when Jesus returns to the earth and establishes his kingdom forever and ever? Well, I've already mentioned Daniel 2, where Nebuchadnezzar sees a statue with the head of gold, and this dream is interpreted so that we know the head of gold is Babylon. We then, after Babylon, a kingdom will follow. We know that that chest of silver is Persia. And then there's a midsection of bronze. We know that is Greece. There's legs of iron. We know that is Rome. Then the only question becomes, well, what are the feet of iron and clay? Right at the very end, the empire of Rome that runs through history takes on a different character. There's something about the mixing of iron and clay, metal and biological, iron and clay. We learn that in Daniel 2, and then we get into Daniel 7, and we again hear about this empire that is, that is um, ascended in the days that Jesus returns to the earth, the empire that is ruling the earth at the time of Jesus' return. What does the Bible say about that empire in Daniel 7? Well, Daniel sees this empire, and it's a beast with ten horns. But not just any beast. It's a, it's a beast that Daniel has a difficulty describing. The only way he can describe it is, is to say it's terrifying and it's not like the other three that came before it. And it has iron teeth and bronze claws. So the beast itself is some sort of metal but then it has 10 horns on its head. What are these 10 horns? Well, the 10 horns are described. The the, the dream is interpreted. And we find out that the 10 horns are 10 kings. They're 10 
human king. So this beast is a mix of iron, bronze, metal, and 10 human kings, biological kings. It is a merging of metal and men. We find that in in Daniel chapter 7. Then we also hear about this figure that Daniel calls the little horn, who's really annoying. He runs his mouth and he speaks great things against the Most High God. He makes war against the saints and prevails against the saints. Why would... Then we find out more about this little horn in Daniel 11 that gives more detail to the little horn. The little horn does whatever he wants to do. The little horn opposes every so-called God. The little horn honors the God of fortresses. The God of fortresses helps the little horn. The little horn will honor a God that his fathers didn't know. From Daniel chapter 11, we can tell, it's obvious, that the little horn is an atheist. He opposes every so-called God. He doesn't, he doesn't bow to any of them. He's an atheist. He's an atheist that opposes every so-called God. And he's an atheist who honors a God that his fathers never knew. What does it mean to be an atheist who opposes every so-called God and yet honors and receives help from a God that his fathers never knew? That means two things about this entity, this God of fortresses. It means it's a new God that no one has heard of it before. And it also means it's a real power. It's not a superstition. It's not a, an empty concept. It is a real entity with real power that can actually help the little horn. That's what we know about the God of Fortresses. Now imagine an atheist that opposes every so-called God honoring a new God that his fathers never knew and a God that has real power to help. What might a scenario look like? I know what I would think a, a scenario like that might look like. It might look like a guy who doesn't believe in God in relationship with a real earthly entity that has real power and that atheist would honor that God or hand that God over earthly riches, earthly wealth, economics, economic power. When it says that the little horn honors the God of fortresses with wealth, we should understand that to mean economic power because that is what wealth is. Wealth is economic power. So in this scenario, you have an atheist handing over economic power to a real entity known as the God of Fortresses that can actually help 
the little horn overcome earthly fortresses. Listen to what the Bible says. It's Daniel eleven thirty nine that he, the little horn, will deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Well, what is this? What's what is this foreign god? The foreign god is the god of fortresses that we find in verse. 38, a foreign God, an unknown God, an alien God, really, that is another word for foreign, alien, an alien God, a new alien God. Now, a lot of you guys are going to maybe think that I'm going off on the UFO uh, track here. I'm not really into the UFO thing. I'm sure there's, you know reasons to be into the UFO thing. I am not into the UFO thing. I am more into the artificial intelligence thing. And so when I dream of an entity that has power to help someone overcome the strongest fortresses, I'm thinking about artificial intelligence and how a super intelligent AI could potentially decrypt every secure system in the entire world very quickly because of its super intelligent capabilities. So when I'm thinking of the little horn, an atheist receiving help from the God of fortresses, an alien, a foreign God that his fathers didn't know. I'm not thinking about aliens coming from, outer space. I mean, if that's what happens, then this thing's completely on a whole nother level that I have not grappled with. So if the, if the UFO thing is set to happen, then I'm going to be, I'm going to be reeling like everyone else. I mean, if, if a UFO comes down from heaven, lands on the white house front yard and basically says, yeah, I am, you know, I've come from the abyss then I'm going to definitely have to recalibrate what I'm thinking about this whole thing. But that's not where my mind goes. My mind c- could be wrong. It's been wrong lots, lots of times before. What I'm thinking about is artificial intelligence. What would it look like to have a conscious machine that is super intelligent? People describe what that might be like. They say it would be like interacting with a god. A god of fortresses, possibly? Maybe. Because there's a very good chance that a super intelligent AI would be hostile and that it would be looking to subdue every threat against it. That's just part of the deal. People talk about that all the time. That's There's nothing strange or preposterous about that idea. A super intelligent AI's first objective is probably going to be survival. And to survive, you have to identify threats and subdue threats. Now, this beast that's made out of metal isn't entirely autonomous. It's connected to the human race. The human race is part of it. It has 10 horns. It has 10 kings that apparently govern it somehow. So it's not like an AI that is completely rogue. It's an AI under the control of humanity. At least that's what I'm thinking right now. Now, could I be wrong? Absolutely. But if I'm right or kind of right or along the right path here, then we probably need to start having some conversations like this and start grappling with what the Bible says and really start locking into God's plan for us from here on in because God has a plan for each and every one of us. Every single one of us, God has a plan And God has power to execute his plan. And his plan doesn't depend upon human beings. His plan depends on his faithfulness that never fails. So whatever intricate, incredibly beautiful plan that God has for you and for me, we need to start asking God for. We're asking God for wisdom and drawing near to him in faith, 
in repentance, in wholeheartedness, watching, praying, and proclaiming. That's what we need to be doing. Proclaiming what? Proclaiming Jesus is King. That is our proclamation. He's the King of Kings. He's he's the one on Mount Zion that Psalm 2 nations are raging against. He is the king. God has set his king in Zion. In Daniel 7, we see one like the son of man coming in the clouds, being presented before the ancient of days, and the ancient of days rewarding that one like the son of man, a kingdom that never ends. And what happens to the little horn and the beast? They're burned up. They're gone forever. They never come back. They're gone. The beast and the little horn are both burned. But before they're both burned up forever, God has a, God has a plan to use them for his glory. The beast and the little horn are instruments of God to do what God does, which is glorious, holy, beautiful, good, good, good things. That's what God does. And what good thing could he be doing with something so nasty as a terrifying metal beast with 10 horns and a little horn that speaks great things against God and makes war against the saints. What good thing could God be doing there? God is finishing this story, yo. He is putting a bow on this thing and the bow is such that it exposes everything. It exposes the good. It exposes the bad. It exposes God's great redemption and his love. And it exposes human darkness in its greatest desire to actually join with Satan and rebel against the throne of God and try to take the throne by force. Which is a completely insane idea. But that's what people want to do. So they want to join with devils while they they try to do that thing. Well, in the face of that, we have the love of Jesus telling people, proclaiming the gospel to the very end, not just in words, but in deeds, loving, blessing, serving our enemies. While what do they do? They increasingly join with Satan to join his rebellion against God. That is the essence of what God is going to be doing with the beast and the little horn. We need to be ready to meet our king. We need to be ready to meet Jesus. That means wholeheartedness. That means loving him. That means interceding for the lost and calling out for his return. Calling out Maranatha. Jesus, come. Jesus, we want you to come. Jesus, we want you to return to the earth. Take the earth. It is rightfully yours. You have purchased it. You've purchased us. Come and return. Make all the wrong things right. Now, there's a there's a deep cry for in the Christian spirit for Jesus to return to the earth. That is in there. Most of, most of us are out of touch with that reality because we're too busy with this thing or that thing or, or whatever the thing is. We're out of touch with that cry for Jesus to return and to make all things right and to rule forever. We've lo- we lose touch with that, so it's not like something that we feel uh, we necessarily identify with. We're like, yeah, yeah, biblically, that makes sense. Yeah, we're supposed to want Jesus to return. But really what I want to do is I, I want to watch football, and I want to Instagram, and I want to whatever it is. You, you, you put it on the list. Those are the things I want to do. 
Jesus, yeah, you can come back when, you know, I'm dead and, and, and it's another, no, that's kind of the, where we're, most of us are at. If, if we're just brutally honest with ourselves, there is a cry in the spirit for Jesus to return to his bride and we're out of touch with it. And Jesus is going to bring us in touch with that cry. Before this thing is out, before this thing is over, we're going to be crying out with all of our being for Jesus to return and to release his judgments in the earth. Sounds crazy. But it is going to be a very active, spiritually active time on the earth. There's going to be a lot going on in heaven, a lot going on in the earth. God's not going to forget about us. God's not going to all of a sudden lose his ability to take care of us. He, All of his promises will be 100% true all the way to the end. He is faithful to the end. He will not fail us. He will not fail us. His grace is sufficient to keep us every single day for the rest of our lives, no matter what comes our way. God promises that. It's not about human strength. It's about the faithfulness of God. It's not about what you and I can endure in our flesh. It's about what God can do through his saints when he says, I'm going to do it by my spirit. And that's it. Man, I'm feeling like I'm getting my preach on tonight. I don't know. I'm I'm all, I'm all fired up uh, talking about Daniel and about what Daniel has to say about our time. I don't know how else to say it, but we are entering into the days, and I, I don't know if it's 10 years. I don't know if it's 20 years. I don't know if it's 30, 40, 50. I don't know. And it could be 100 years. I don't... It, it, could it be more than 100? I don't know how that works. If it could be more than 100, then we've definitely gone multi-planetary and we're traveling like around like Captain Kirk and Picard and uh, Riker. But I believe we may have some decades left, but I believe we're, we're going to be wrapping this thing up pretty soon. And... By we, I mean God's going to be wrapping this thing up pretty soon. God has this thing planned out since the beginning. And he's put us here to do his will. And his will is infused with his spirit, which is what he operates with to get his will done in the earth and we get to be a part of that we get those we who believe in Jesus who trust in his name get to be a part of God's great plan for his saints in the end times we always you know read those like oh boy are those heroes of the bible aren't they great well guess what those heroes in the Bible are just like you and I. They have failings and weaknesses and and lots of things that they wish they may, may maybe could have done differently. But they were made great. Not because of their greatness. They were made great because the, of the greatness of God. The greatness of their God that they trusted in. Who gave them a great name? Who made them heroes? Because he loved them. Well, he loves you. He loves me. And he will take you and I all the way into eternity with him. It's not difficult. He, he, he knows it's not difficult to him. To us, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So we read about this time when Jesus is going to return. And if 
it seems that we are heading into these times that are being described. And we can start to see this picture emerge from the book of Daniel, a, a, a picture of an empire that mixes iron and clay, metal and men. And in this empire, there is a figure, a man, the little horn, who is an atheist who receives help from an entity with power that can help him deal with the strongest fortresses. So that is the picture that we see emerging. We see the merging of iron and clay, metal and men. We see an atheist rising, speaking great things against God and making war against the saints. Then we get into Daniel chapter 7, which we talked about last episode, and, and I, I, I probably went a little bit maybe too long on that episode, but there was such good information there, and I, I kind of want to wrap it up today with this picture that we've been talking about. Um, Daniel chapter 9 talks about 70 weeks that are decreed for the people of Israel, or the, the Jewish people, and Jerusalem, the holy city. And this 70 weeks is a time period that, that God says there's a list of things that are going to be fulfilled. And on this list, there's going to be a finishing, a completion of the transgression. We talked about that. That was the Jewish transgression that began at Sinai, the golden calf, and followed through with the rejection of the prophets, rejection of God's word, the killing of the prophets, and then finally the execution of the Son of God. That was what finished the transgression. But the finishing of, of that transgression then led actually to, in the same reality, an atonement, a final atonement, a once and for all sacrifice that would be given to atone for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. Well, the completion of the transgression, the rejection and execution of the Son of God was also the final atonement, the final substitution, the perfect lamb that didn't deserve to die. He didn't deserve to die. Why did he why was he executed? He was executed by a people who have been rejecting God and his word and his prophets since the very beginning. They rejected an innocent man. They executed an innocent man. That innocent man's blood is the blood of the lamb, the perfect lamb of God that is offered to God on behalf of sinners who deserve that death. Sinners like me who deserve that death. And an, a once and for all atonement to wash over all of my sins, to wash them away and to make me and you and anyone who believes in Jesus white as snow. The final atonement, the final, the completion of the transgression and the final atonement all occurred in one magnificent event, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That one event made the temple and the temple system obsolete. The veil was torn. A new covenant, a covenant made in the blood of Jesus, made a new and living way to relate with God possible. It was now possible for humans to enter into the Holy of Holies. In fact, the Holy of Holies would enter into every man, every man, woman, and child, every human being in their temple. They have a Holy of Holies. It is what the Holy of Holies was meant to point, uh, to symbolize, there was a holy of holies in the temple, a physical temple that God dwelt in. But where he really wanted to dwell was in the human frame, in the human 
spirit in the human being, in the Holy of Holies. The Holy, Holy, Holy of Holies in the temple pointed to the Holy of Holies in the human heart where God wanted to write his laws on the inner man, not externally, but internally. Emmanuel, God with us. God wants to dwell in us. The Holy of Holies was anointed. The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and God came to dwell in human beings, no longer in the temple, but now in every human being that opens their heart to Jesus Christ as the Savior and Lord of their life. Glorious realities. And if you haven't made that commitment, that decision to follow Jesus, I encourage you, do it now. Do it now. Turn your heart to Jesus in prayer. It's all it is. It's prayer. It's calling out. Call out to Jesus. Repent of your sin and follow him with all of your heart. Sacrifice everything to follow him. Don't let anything get in your way. Whatever gets in your way of following Jesus is your enemy. We must take up our crosses daily. We must follow him with all of our hearts. You could do that today. You can know Jesus for yourself today. And God will take up residence in your heart the way he was resided in the temple in Jerusalem. That is what he desires. He is knocking at the door of your heart. And if you will open to him in prayer and say, Jesus, I'm yours. I'm sorry. I will follow you 100%. And then begin the journey. Jesus will come in you and save you to the uttermost forever. It is sealed in his blood, promised by his spirit and available to everyone today. And I encourage you to take that moment right now and believe in Jesus believe in Jesus. Well, as we continue here in Daniel 9, we actually hear about a final week, a final period of seven years that would fit in to the other prophecies that we've been hearing about the time when Jesus would return. The final seven years is marked by a strong covenant. A strong covenant with one that Daniel calls the desolator, the one who makes desolate. What does it mean to make desolate? It means to basically vacuum out anything of any value. It's basically to make worthless. It's to devalue and destroy and basically make fit for nothing but just wipe, just burning it, just just being done with it. And, and it's, it's completely worthless and it's just trash and not only trash, but like it just needs to be incinerated. That's who makes this covenant the desolator, the one who makes worthless, the one who takes a green pasture and turns it into a dune of sand. He is the one who makes worthless. He is the one who removes value and worth. He is the desolator. Who is this desolator in Daniel chapter 9? This desolator is the little horn. The little horn that we saw in Daniel 7 and we heard described in 
Daniel chapter 11, the one who does whatever he wants, the one who, the atheist who honors the God of fortresses. This is the desolator. And he makes a strong covenant. Well, what kind of an agreement might someone known as the desolator, who speaks great things against God, who does whatever he wants, who prospers until the indignation is accomplished, who is an atheist, and who receives help from the God of fortresses, what kind of an agreement would the desolator make? I'm not sure exactly, but something tells me it is the inverse of the New Testament covenant. It is a Faustian bargain. You guys ever heard that term before? Faustian bargain. There is a German legend about a man who sells his soul to the devil for unlimited knowledge and pleasure. Faust, the German legend, he's like some sort of doctor or something, and makes a bargain with Mephistopheles, which is the devil. And he trades unlimited pleasure, unlimited knowledge for his eternal soul. And that is what's known as a Faustian bargain, something that barters the eternal for the short-term temporal gain. That's a Faustian bargain. And that, in essence, is exactly the inverse of the new covenant reality that we find in Jesus, where he says, hey, I will give you eternal life, eternal life. You will experience my life. And not just in eternity, you will experience eternity in heaven. That is the promise. But you will also experience eternal life in now, in the now. Jesus's life isn't just for in the, the, the great by and by. The life that Jesus promises is available now. Not in the full measure but in a powerful measure. We can taste of eternal life now. And what must we give in exchange for eternal life? We must barter the temporal life. We must take our current existence and offer it as a sacrifice and say, God, my existence is yours, and I will do your will. And when we do God's will, God answers us with eternal life. Doing God's will is eternal life. You can't do God's will without the Spirit empowering, bringing it to pass. Doing God's will is only possible through the Holy Spirit. The new covenant reality in Jesus is grace by the Holy Spirit to do God's will to experience eternal life. Well, that requires us to sacrifice the here and now. We must hand it over and say, God, I give up my life here for the promise of the life that you give. That is the new cust that is the new covenant reality. So the desolator, the one who makes worthless, is going to at the end make some sort of an agreement, some sort of a contract with people that barters eternal life for temporal pleasure and knowledge. What might that look like? Could that look like some sort of 
technology that promises superhuman cognition and promises virtual realities and augmented realities that makes your greatest fantasies come true. And not only that, but the ability to manipulate the mind so that time seems to pass more slowly, where you might be able to live out an entire lifetime in an afternoon because the subconscious mind is manipulated in a dreamlike state where human beings could actually experience lifetimes through manipulations in technology. A bartering of superhuman cognition and unlimited and untold pleasures all for the simple price of your soul. A Faustian bargain offered and accepted by fallen humanity because fallen humanity joins with the rebellion. And the little horn leads this rebellion in conjunction with the primordial rebel, Satan. So you have the devil and you have human beings joining together. It is where Psalm 2 intersects with Revelation 12, the Psalm 2 rage of the nation meets the Revelation 12 fury of the dragon. What are they so furious about? What are they so, what are, what are they raging about? Well, according to Psalm 2, they're raging because God has set his king in Zion. God has awarded the one like the Son of Man who comes and is presented before him on the clouds a kingdom that never ends. A kingdom like a stone that becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. Jesus is the one upon that throne. And the devil and the fallen nations don't like it at all. Daniel is such an incredible book. What we have seen is incredible. It's incredible to consider that God gave these prophecies over 2,500 years ago. And they're more relevant now than they've ever been. From where I'm sitting and from what I'm seeing, the nature of these prophecies are absolutely profound as it pertains to where it seems the history of man is heading. This technological future, this future marked by a point in time when technology accelerates at such unthinkable speed that our ability to understand what happens next is obscured. A point in time known as the singularity, a technological future brought about primarily by advancing technology in artificial intelligence. And here we are seeing in the pages of Daniel a time in history when the final empire will mix metal and men where a final leader will arise who is an atheist and who receives help from an entity 
known as the god of fortresses. The little horn who makes a Faustian bargain with humanity, potentially through a technology that the book of Revelation calls the mark of the beast. An agreement that humanity takes the mark, receives the temporal promise of pleasure and knowledge while taking a step into apostasy. Selling their souls for pleasure and knowledge. It's the seduction we found in Genesis 3 where the serpent told Eve she could become like God through knowledge, through intelligence. She ate the fruit then. Humanity's eating the fruit again in our time. But there is one who's coming who will one day split the sky, whose kingdom will never end. And he is just as powerful now as he is when he splits the sky. His Holy Spirit is available now to all who call upon him. And so for us saints, we must be watching, we must be praying, and we must be proclaiming Jesus is King. That concludes this episode of Babylon Singularity. I want to thank you for tuning in. If you're looking to hear more from me, you can find me on Twitter as well as my website, BabylonSingularity.com. I've also authored a book titled Babylon, available on Amazon. I look forward to hearing any thoughts or feedback, comments that you may have to help me make this show better. I do hope it's a blessing to you. And... I hope that you'll tune in next time to Babylon Singularity.